All right, like Chandler, Chandler said, um, I actually graduated from Carson Newman back in 2015 uh, and was an OG RUF person. I was actually a part of RUF before it was RUF. It was called MCF, which is Mossy Creek Fellowship, because... There's a church plan here called that now. Interesting. That is uh, <laughs> something else. But I... Uh, but yeah, I went, uh, graduated from Carson Newman, then went down to seminary at Beeson Divinity School at Sanford University and, uh, and graduated in 2018. Um, and then, to be honest, y'all, my life absolutely fell apart in January of 2019. And I would like to stand up here and say that God has put my life back together, but he has not. But... What I want to communicate with y'all tonight is that I have met a God who is loving and who has been with me through all of that. So anyways, if y'all would, uh, I know we just prayed, but if y'all could pray with me again, that'd be great. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and to uh, learn more about you and to be with fellow brothers and sisters. I pray that uh, my words would fall to the ground and blow away and be remembered no more, but that your words would remain and that they would change us. Amen. All right, so prior to moving back to Tennessee, I moved down to Birmingham, Alabama, moved back to Tennessee to actually accept a job here, worked here in Res Life for a couple of years. That's right. Um, <laughs> if y'all didn't know, um, a thing about Alabama is that people in Alabama love some football. And it's to the point that football is a religion in the state of Alabama. And so much so that I joke sometimes that the Holy Trinity of Alabama includes one former football player and two former football coaches, Bo Jackson, Bear Bryant, and Nick Saban. <laughs> and unless you think that Tennessee is immune from this type of idol worship, Elvis Presley, Peyton Manning, and anybody? Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. That's right. Y'all got it. All right. But that, that's neither here nor there. But um, I heard this story several times when I was in Alabama that in 2012, there was a cookie maker in Tuscaloosa that received a letter from the University of Alabama. And this letter uh, was a cease and desist letter because this cookie maker had been making cookies in the likeness of the University of Alabama. The cookie maker had made the Alabama Crimson A. She had made a, a, a Crimson Elephant and she had even used um, a cookie that looked like Nick Saban's famous straw hat. And so the University of Alabama sent her a cease and desist letter, essentially saying, if you don't stop making these cookies, we're going to sue you. And uh, the story goes that Nick Saban caught wind of this, and he went to the administration, and he told them to drop the cease and desist letter. And they did it. And the crazy thing about that story is that I can't actually verify if it's true. Um, but it is something that I heard over and over and over again while I was living in Alabama. And as we all have heard recently, Nick Saban has decided to retire. And since people are talking about Saban, that story has actually come back up. And this story, although I can't verify if it's true or not, we all, for some reason, think that it's true or think that it could possibly be true. And I'm wondering, like, why is that? 
And I think the reason is that we all inherently know that Nick Saban actually does carry that much authority to where he could go to the administration of the University of Alabama and say, hey, don't sue these people, and they would not sue them, which is crazy. And uh, so one of the main questions that Mark, our story deals with tonight, is who has the authority? Mark 1 tells us that Jesus entered Galilee and started to preach the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus has started his ministry in Galilee, and it's causing the religious establishment and Jesus to come at odds with one another. And the question that is constantly being forced to the forefront in Mark is who has the authority to speak for God? And when we read about Jesus in our passage, he's in this in-between state in his life. He is the king, yet no one has actually recognized that he is the king. He has the authority, but his authority is constantly being brought into question. So I'd like for you all to imagine with me what it would have been like to be a disciple traveling with Jesus while he's going about in his ministry in Galilee. So once Jesus actually begins his ministry, he gains popularity real quickly so that people from hundreds of miles away are traveling to come see him. So that would have meant long days of ministering to people, crowded spaces, and not a lot of time to actually take care of one's own personal needs. And so in our passage, it makes sense that as the disciples walked through a grain field, they were hungry, and so they plucked heads of grain crushed them in their hands, and then ate them. And believe it or not, this actually wasn't considered stealing, uh, according to the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament made a provision for people that said that uh, they could pluck the heads of grain as long as they didn't put a sickle to the standing grain. Or the passage of Deuteronomy also references, you could pluck grapes at a vineyard as long as you didn't put them in a basket. And so essentially think about this as God's um, provision for making sure that the poor of Israel did not go hungry and yet at the same time not letting people take advantage of a system. And so when the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What the Pharisees are not accusing is they're not saying, hey, why are your disciples stealing someone else's grain? What they are asking and what they're implying is that they are not keeping the Sabbath holy. And so God, in the Ten Commandments, commands us to keep the Sabbath holy. And to a good first century Jew, keeping the Sabbath holy would have meant many things, but it would have at least meant that you were to refrain from work. And so essentially what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus' disciples of doing is working on the Sabbath. And I don't know about you, but plucking a head of grain seems like a far cry from reaping and working in the field. But they weren't actually taking up uh, cause with God's law. They were taking up cause with their own man-made rules and man-made regulations. And the Pharisees, in their attempt to actually obey God's command to keep the Sabbath, had made all these rules about how one was to not work, how far someone could walk. 
And they made it to a point that they couldn't actually keep God's commandments because of all their rules. And I think the Pharisees here are actually, I think the Pharisees, you know, they weren't right, but they also get a bad rap. And uh, I believe they were just committing an error that each of us actually makes also. And that's the error of missing the forest because of the trees. And they were so detailed about keeping the Sabbath holy that they lost why God gave the command in the first place. And so Jesus replies to the question of the Pharisees with his own question. And he's trying to point out to them that, hey, you guys are missing the point here without coming out and directly saying you're missing the point here. But he says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. And he also gave some to his companions. And Jesus here is referencing a terrible and dark time in David's life. So Jonathan, David's best friend and the son of King Saul, has just warned David, hey, my dad is trying to kill you because he knows that you're going to take the throne. And so David has fled with his men, and he arrives in the city of Nob. And in the city of Nob, there was a temple, and there were a lot of priests. And David goes to the temple, and he asks the priests in Nob, hey, my men are hungry. We have just left because, you know, we were in a hurry. We were on a mission from the king. Do you have any bread for us? And so the priest gives David the consecrated bread, and um, Ahimelech is the priest who gives him the bread. But in doing so, Ahimelech unknowingly aligns himself with David against Saul. And one of Saul's men, Doeg the Edomite, is there, and he sees all this take place. And Doeg goes back to Saul, tells Saul, hey, I saw Ahimelech give David bread, and now he's your enemy. He comes back with Saul, and Saul will eventually command Doeg to kill all the priests. And Doeg will end up killing 85 priests in the city of Nob. And only one of those priests will end up escaping. And that priest is actually Ahimelech's son, Abathar. And Abathar goes and he finds David. And he reports everything that has happened in Nob. And David communicates to him, hey, stay with me for your own protection. Abathar would actually go on to serve as David's high priest during David's reign. And this is the same Abathar that Jesus is referencing when he asked the Pharisees his question. And Jesus' point, I think in one sense, is pretty simple. He's saying to the Pharisees, when David was in need he was able to do what would have been considered unlawful under, nor- under normal circumstances. Um, and so Jesus is saying that if David can do what is unlawful under normal circumstances, so can my disciples. And yet, it also seems that Jesus draws out this story specifically because he is trying to make a connection between himself and David in the minds of the Pharisees. And this begs the question, what was similar in the life of David and the life of Jesus at this time? 
And the connection that Jesus is trying to bring out is that both he and David were men whom God had chosen to be king, and yet their kingdoms had not been realized yet. David had been anointed to be king, but his kingdom had not yet been established because Saul was still on the throne. The authority, which was directed by God, had shifted from Saul to David, even though it had not come to pass. And the same thing with Jesus. He had been given divine authority to establish his kingdom. His message, in more or less words to the Pharisees, is whatever authority you all think you may have is ending. Because God has appointed me to be the king, and in my kingdom, I have come to set my people free. In my kingdom, my people will not be burdened with endless rules and regulations, but I am giving them a new yoke and a new burden, a yoke that is easy and a burden that will be light. And Jesus goes on to explain what the Sabbath will look like in his new kingdom. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And I love this saying, because if you were to translate it really like word for word, it would come out to something like the Sabbath through the man came to be, not the man through the Sabbath. So Jesus' message is also pretty simple here. If humans didn't exist, there would be no Sabbath. So in the creation story, when you think about it, as the author of Genesis wrote it, God uh, takes his day of rest after he creates everything else in the world, including Adam. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And this is the divine creation order how God wanted it to be laid out. He wanted to, man to come before uh, the Sabbath, both chronologically speaking, and if you will, also in significance or relevance, that man was supposed to become before the Sabbath. However, the religious climate of the day that Jesus is in had prioritized strict Sabbath, Sabbath observance according to man-made rules that had actually flipped the creation order. So that Sabbath came before man, not man before the Sabbath. So uh, the Sabbath was made to benefit people, but the Pharisees had turned it to something that was quite a bit of a burden to people. A a task to be checked off the list, an exercise in one's self-justification. And so the Pharisees had taken a gift to God and made it a burden. But Jesus is stepping in here and asserting that in his kingdom, the Sabbath would no longer be a project of self-justification. We weren't meant to be human beings on the Sabbath. We We were meant to be human beings, not human doings on the Sabbath. And this is exactly what Jesus is reclaiming for his people. The Sabbath in Jesus's kingdom will be a day of rest used to lay down burdens, not take more up. And this last phrase of Jesus in this passage, he said, uh, is meant to establish his authority. He is saying to the Pharisees, in case you didn't think I have the authority to reclaim the Sabbath for my people, 
I actually do, because the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I think this phrase is a little odd for us. Uh, the Son of Man seems pretty general, right? It's a title that Jesus would often use of himself. And we saw the last time that Jesus used this title was when he healed the paralytic and he forgave the paralytic of his sins. And this phrase, in one sense, could mean any man, a.k.a. the Son of Man. But this phrase would have been linked to a very specific person in the minds of the Jews. And we do this, too, in our culture. We use a generic phrase to denote someone very, very specific. And so when I say this phrase, I want want you to tell me who it is. The boy who lived. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. All right. So in one sense, the boy who lived could mean any boy who lived. But all of us in this room, unless you were homeschooled, knew. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) All of us knew that the boy who lived means Harry Potter. And this is the exact same idea behind the phrase son of man. When Jesus uses this title for himself, he wants everyone to go in their minds back to a specific place in Scripture. And that specific place in Scripture he wants them to go to is Daniel chapter 7. And in that, in that chapter, Daniel has an apocalyptic vision where he sees four beasts. One of those beasts looks like a lion. One looks like a bear. One looks like a leopard. And the fourth beast has iron teeth and ten horns coming out of his head. It's pretty terrifying stuff to the point where Daniel actually says in Scripture, I was anxious in my soul. So uh, a very long story short, these beasts represent different nations that will have power on this earth. Now, if you grew up like I did, uh, you may very well have heard that people try to say that the first beast was Nero, And the second beast was obviously Hitler. And the third beast was Stalin. And the fourth beast, which had yet to been revealed, was obviously either George Bush or Barack Obama, whatever side of the aisle you (laughs) fell on. (laughs) Or maybe an updated version is just Trump or Biden. I'm not really sure. But I'm going to go out on a wild limb here and say that is not only wrong, uh, but it's entirely missing the point of Daniel chapter 7. So in the middle of, of Daniel 7... Daniel sees the Ancient of Days sitting down and taking his throne, and it says that thousands of thousands attended to him. This is apocalyptic language for he was very important. And this Ancient of Days destroys the fourth beast and takes the power away from all the other three beasts. And then Daniel says that he looked and before him was one like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all nations and peoples every, of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And that is the point of Daniel chapter seven. And this is the idea that Jesus wants everyone to go to when he calls himself Son of Man. By using that title, Son of Man, what Jesus is claiming 
is that God has given him the authority to establish an everlasting kingdom. And that authority to establish the kingdom of God doesn't lie in Rome. It doesn't lie in the Pharisees. It solely lies in Jesus as king. All right, well, this stuff is great, right? We all know that Doeg the Idiomite killed 85 people now. And we all know that Fauci may or may not be the fourth and final beast. (laughs) But what does this message about the Son of Man having authority over the Sabbath pragmatically change about our lives? In other words, on Thursday morning, when you're running late to class and Maples is backed out the door and you feel like a failure for yet another time, why does this message matter? Well, let me give you one practical way that I think this message can actually impact our lives. Because Jesus is the son of man, God has given him authority to establish his kingdom. And in God's kingdom, the Sabbath is made for you and for me. I don't really have time to get into the specifics about Sabbath observance and what that could look like practically in your life. But at the very least, I think what practicing Sabbath means for us is that you can stop your projects of self-justification. So what is a project of self-justification? It is anything that we try to do to convince ourselves that by doing that thing or by not doing a certain thing, that God will love us, that we will belong in this world. I used to have a, a professor in seminary, Dr. House. He's an Old Testament professor. And before a lot of his classes, honestly, he would get up and start the class by going, okay, I guess it's time to justify our existence here today. <laughs> and what he was making fun of is this idea in our culture that in order to mean something, we had to do something. We had to contribute to society. We had to produce results. We had to make an A on that final paper. We have to serve at our church. We have to get the right job, marry the right person, have 2.5 kids and a dog. (laughs) And if you don't do all these things, it means that you're a failure. And Jesus' message for you is that you don't have to do any of that, and he's still going to love you. I can't really verify the theological accuracy of this, but I love this statement so much, I'm going to go out on another limb here and say it, but... If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. (laughs) I love that. I think it shows and it communicates how much he loves you, that he wants people to know about you, that he would brag about you when people came over. And think about it for a second. Jesus died for you when you were his enemy. So now that you are a child of God, There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn favor with him. There is nothing you can do to justify yourself. In other words, you don't have to justify your existence. You just have to exist in the presence of the one who justifies. And in closing, I want all of us to do this a little exercise in determining our own projects of self-justification. So if you would entertain me for just a second, if you could close your eyes. Now what I want everyone to do is to think 
about that one thing in your life that if you could just kick that habit or stop doing that or perhaps do something positive that your whole life would change? What is that one thing in your life that if others found out about it, it would ruin you? Perhaps it's crippling anxiety or maybe you abuse drugs and alcohol or maybe you feel shame because your parents got a divorce or maybe you try to only skip one meal at a time so that others won't pick up on your eating disorder or maybe it could be that you hate yourself because you can't stop looking at pornography. All right, now everyone open your eyes. Now turn to your neighbor. I'm kidding, we're not going to do that. (laughs) But what I want you to think about is that feeling that you would get if everyone in this room knew what it is that you thought about just now. You have that feeling? Hear now the good news of the gospel. Even if you never get better, God still loves you and he sent his son to die for you. Now go live in his grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who came to die for us. Thank you for Jesus' uh, grace towards us. I pray that we would learn to rest in you and to rest in your own justification. Amen.